بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet peace be upon him alrighty continuing our exploration of Surah 2 Surah Al-Baqarah uh, does anyone have any preliminary questions about anything at all usual blank stares alrighty and so we were finishing off uh, in speaking about taqwa. And taqwa we defined as shielding yourself, as God consciousness. And so let's pull up the screen. So once again, nod, pretend you can see the screen. Excellent. So, <laughs> taqwa, in the context of this ayah that, this is the book, no doubt in it, guidance for those who have taqwa, here translated as God conscious, or mindful of God, and so I was translating it as those who shield yourself with God. In action, taqwa means to guard yourself, which is what we all do when we're fasting. That, oh no, baby Elias is crying. So, so basically, when we're, did you just like, did you put him like in a safe place? All I just saw was, anyway, so, uh, so, so the idea of fasting is literally walking taqwa because nobody knows that you're fasting. Nobody also knows if you're secretly cheating and breaking your fast. But if you are fasting, you're you are extra conscious about anything that you might be consuming and so students will ask me questions well what if i use an inhaler or what if i get a vaccination or when you're doing wudu and the water goes into your mouth or nose you're extra conscious to make sure you don't swallow it swallow it that is literally taqwa being on guard being vigilant about yourself even if the only other who knows that you're being so vigilant is Allah Ta'ala. And so this is also a very famous conversation among some companions. In one narration, Omar is asking the question to another companion to describe taqwa. And we have two narrations that sort of make the same point. In one narration, the companion says that taqwa is when you have to go through a forest of thorns and all you have to protect yourself is a thin shroud. And you bring the shroud close to yourself uh, so that you don't get pricked by the thorns as you walk through. And it succeeds in protecting you. That is one analogy of taqwa. Another analogy of taqwa is you're walking through a forest of thorns. And you carefully step where to walk so that you don't get pricked. So, for example, if you think of the original Indiana Jones movie in the opening scene, when he's going through the cave, he's stepping carefully to make sure he doesn't step on the wrong square that'll lead to these poisonous darts shooting at him. And, of course, when he's running out, you know, to, to save himself, he doesn't even care. And so all these, uh, he's stepping on everything and all these uh, darts are being fired at him. So taqwa, again, is this idea of being vigilant with yourself being on guard with yourself no matter the context that you're in the problem 
is that very, very often we we choose the level of discipline or the level of our personality according to the environment. So we might be very upright in a public setting. We might be very generous in a public setting. We might be very compassionate in a public setting. And then when we're in private, we're tyrants. And then when we're all by ourselves, we might be even potentially worse. And all by ourselves includes the thoughts that we let run in our mind. And so Takwa is shifting it, it's reversing it. It's saying you are going to be in control of yourself consistently, regardless of the environment that you're in. Naturally, when you're in a public setting, you're only revealing this much of your personality, right? When you're with your friends, you, they see more of your personality. When you're with your closest friends and family, they see much more of your personality. And then there's you by yourself. And you may or may not look at your whole self when you are alone. Some people tend to look only at their flaws. Some people only tend to look at their strengths uh, when, when they're alone. And so again, the idea of taqwa is you're always monitoring yourself. And to really make this point further, think of all those narrations we have where the prophet, peace be upon him, would even pay attention to which foot entered a room first. That when he would enter into a bathroom, a restroom, he would enter with his left foot first. When he would enter another space, like a bedroom, especially a house, especially, especially a masjid, he would enter with his right foot first. And all of this is in the realm of taqwa, of being very, very much vigilant with yourself, very much on guard. Uh, and then Asim says, the more public you are, the more performative you are. That is one of the, the, the challenges uh, why I can't stand the whole celebrity culture, the celebrity preacher culture, is that it's almost difficult to not be in performance mode. I even, you know, don't like public du'as. So even at the end, you know, you, at the beginning, at the end, you hear me do the same du'a at the beginning. And you hear me do the same du'a at the end. And this is not out of any sort of nobility. I think it's too easy to turn your public du'a into a performance rather than a sincere request uh, to Allah. It's almost hard not to do it. Uh, Mustafa, you look like you're processing something about to come forward. No? Yeah. Well, I was uh, thinking to myself, or it could be scripted by the government. <laughs> yeah, true, true, depending on where we are. Yeah, see, like in, in Turkey, in many Arab countries here, your khutbah, your du'a is scripted by the government. In Pakistan, you script your own government, but the way it's kept under control is that if someone doesn't like what you say, they just kill you. So, so different approach, like, you know, in in the Arab world, when they're shooting a speaker, they, you know, they pull up the camera. In Pakistan, when they're shooting a speaker. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, I was telling those jokes at a wedding. You know, totally, totally inappropriate. Yeah. So, so here, the focus of today's discussion, and it might go further than today, is, is looking at the attributes of the people of Taqwa. So the next two ayahs, so Surah Al-Baqarah. Zero two, so Surah two, and basically ayahs two through five. 
are now attributes of the people of taqwa. The muttaqeen, muttaqoon. Okay, so first I'm just going to list them all out straight from the ayahs, and then we'll slowly but surely discuss them. So looking at, if you can see the screen, Three attributes in Ayah 3, three attributes in Ayah 4. Number one, Alladhina yu'minuna bil ghaib. They believe in the unseen. Number two, yuqimu nas-salah. And they establish salah. Number three, And they spend... They do infaq of that which we have provided for them. We're going to talk about these in detail just for some listing them out for you. Number four, five, and six. Number four, they believe in what was sent down to you, and here you is the Prophet, peace be upon him. Remember, the original audience of the Quran is the Prophet himself, peace be upon him. And number five, in what was sent down to those before you. Okay. And then number six, وَبِلْ hum And they have certainty of the hereafter. So those are the six attributes of the people of taqwa. And then ayah five, those who have this, they are on guidance from their rub, and they are successful. So ayah two says this is guidance for those who have taqwa. Ayah five says those who have this are on guidance full circle. And we'll talk about each of these step by step inshallah. First, they believe in the unseen. Okay. So Ghaib is an interesting word because you find it all across Muslim languages uh, over and over again. And so a few things. First and foremost, this is now giving us a minimum of two worlds, two dimensions, the seen and the unseen from the perspective of the human. So now we've added subjectivity here. Subjectivity is going to be a big theme throughout the entire text. The, and this is especially important to point out because we've been conditioned in the era of science to look at everything through an objective lens. So, for example, when we are looking at the attributes of Allah at the beginning of the previous surah, we said he's Ar-Rahman, he's Ar-Rahim, he's Malik, so forth and so on. And we often think of those attributes as though this is who Allah is in a vacuum may or may not be true, but this is who Allah is in your subjective relationship with Allah. That Allah is to you, Allah is to me, most in Rahmah. Allah is to you, is to me, eternal in Rahmah, so forth and so on. And this difference between the subjective and the objective is, it might be a little bit confusing. So for example, if I ask you to think of the earth what's the first image that comes to mind for any of you 
the actual planet. Okay, so like, uh, but describe what you're what you mean when you say the actual planet. Like it's flat. No, I'm kidding. It uh, like a blue and green ball rolling around. Okay, so you're talking about that, that picture that we see of the Earth in space. Yeah. So prior to that photo, what do you think people thought of when they thought of the Earth? Did they think of the planet flying around in space? Or if we say a thousand years ago, uh, chances are uh, akin to, to Mustafa's point, maybe they thought of the soil. Maybe just thought of the world in front of them as far as it went. And so could be what they stood on. Sure. Uh, the flat thing under their feet. Yeah. I mean, unless that's a shoe. But so the point here is that this is illustrating that in our contemporary thinking, we often default to the objective. That when we think of Earth, we think of the ball in space. So, when we, however, think of it from a subjective perspective, the Earth might be all that we see across the horizon and beyond, as well as that which is beneath us. So here, the subjective is taking place by saying that there's the seen realm and then there's the unseen realm from your subjective perspective as a human. What are some elements in the unseen realm? What would you include? So, mashallah, this is one of the rare times in history where I've taught this class, and Allah was the first mentioned of that which is in the unseen. Although Saadi has been in my class like 300 times, so I don't know if she counts. Mustafa. Would that count, considering that Allah did reveal himself to uh, Moses? Well, did he? He spoke to him. Well, he did descend, although Moses couldn't see him because he was too yeah. bright. Yeah. Um, but, like, but what about angels? Don't angels also enter the realm of the scene? Okay, fair point. <laughs> yeah. Um, the soul would also be one of it. The day of judgment, as in when it would occur, um, would be another. What else? Um, heaven, hell, yes. When we are going to die, our deaths are part of life. So the future in general. Is uh -huh. So if we reduce all of this, we have Allah. I'm cautious against calling Allah a being. And then we have the beings that are in the unseen realm, at least by default, like angels and jinns. Are there creatures other than angels and jinns? Could be. We don't know. The general sentiment is that there definitely are. The Quran only mentions directly, at least, angels and jinns. But uh, the general sentiment is that uh, there de uh, definitely are. And we can include the soul as a being your being in the unseen, and then that which is part of the future, which includes the future itself, as well as the day of judgment, as well as heaven and hell. Heaven and hell are also, as locations, they're also part of the unseen. 
and the past is also part of the unseen. So when Allah is narrating the story of Yusuf, alayhi salam, the Prophet Joseph, uh, peace be upon him, at the end of the surah, Allah says to the Prophet, you were not there when this happened. This is being revealed to you from the unseen. And so this is also, the past is also part of the unseen. About Satan, what is, uh, and that which is in other people's hearts? Absolutely. Satan not included as a being, you know, is a jinn, evil jinn. And then, uh, yeah, I'll say people's intentions, yearnings, that which is in the heart of another person. Absolutely. Mustafa. So I've oftentimes thought about the future and whether it would be more precise to say it's the future that is part of Al-Ghaib or whether it's time that is part of Al-Ghaib. I feel like from our perception, sure, future, but sure. Um, oftentimes I think about how God is outside of time because God created time, so time does, does not apply mean, to God. Does that mean God is outside of time? Well, it, it means that God isn't bound by time yeah. time yeah. does like work for god the same way it does for us mm -hmm. and so like it could potentially be the case that the past the present and the future are already done when it comes to god and so from Allah, yeah but if so we're speaking the ghaib from our perspective yeah, yeah. so yeah. absolutely asim does this mean that everything in the unseen is just what exists outside of your perception and that's it as in like like and it's a it's a moment to moment thing because if we're including time in this as uh mustafa mentioned so like right now i'm in my son's room and the door is closed outside of that would we consider that part of the unseen of course yeah yep. so, if we look from your subjective perspective correct yeah uh, this gets into fun uh, theologies of creation. And so there's a common uh, theology of creation that uh, essentially the future and the past don't exist. And that every moment is a moment of creation that has within it your uh, sentiment, your construction of the past, and then your imagination of the future. And there's a whole, whole philosophy behind how this works and such. This is going to break my brain, what's left of my brain, yeah. And so, uh, for our purposes for now, the unseen, we're saying, from the subjective perspective, these are things that are beyond our perception. Sadia. Um, so, I read this hadith somewhere, uh, and they had what mentioned the... Huh? No, I was joking. I was saying, why would you do such a thing? But anyway. <laughs> so they uh, they mentioned the hadith number, but there was no volumes for me or other details for me to really verify if this was, um, you know, authentic or not. But it was uh, intriguing because it said um, uh, that Allah says, Allah forbids, uh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing and God forgive me if I say it wrongly that uh that god forbids cursing the time 
like he says, don't curse the time because I am time. Yeah, and there's I a hadith similar it. to that. Yeah. So you have heard something like that. And is it authentic? Uh, yeah. So when we say God is time, then that's a big, huge statement. Yeah. In the, terms of the right. physics and all these, you know. That's uh, the place of caution, though. So one issue, uh, a basic principle in ayahs and hadith is that there are often blank spaces, we call these ellipses, that may be assumed or answered by other narrations. And so when we are being told that Allah is time, we don't really know what that means. And, and so because uh, even there are multiple terms for time, uh, you know, like dahar and asar and such, waqt, like we have in Urdu as well. Uh, but none of the names of Allah are time. And so then try to imagine what would be the missing words in there, or without the missing words, what seems to be the core of the hadith, the core of the hadith is, of course, don't curse time. And a way to think of what does it mean that Allah is time is that time is unstoppable. But this is the type of thing that is a subject of all kinds of philosophical speculation. But as a statement, yeah, it's uh, regarded as authentic. Although I don't recall Allah saying it as much as the Prophet peace about him saying it about Allah. Right, right. That's what he I think I'm I'm not sure if it was Hadith Qudsi or it was Yeah, I don't remember it being Hadith Qudsi. It's been a while since I've studied it, but it's something okay. you should look up and show. But it was very, very intriguing also because um, you know, in the scientific field they are talking about is is because they're always searching for answers about time and space. Mm -hmm. And so I have heard talks about people saying, is God time? Mm -hmm. it's, so it's just very intriguing to me in that mm -hmm. perspective. Yeah, another point, not to get too far off the, off, off the topic. Uh, the way you and I in the modern West understand time is also a modern phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, the linearity of time might be something that is consistent with what we find in, you know, what we can speculate about the primary sources. But I think we all understand that the perception of time is very different. So, for example, when we speak of the Day of Judgment, sometimes it is called a day, sometimes it is called an hour, never seems to be called a minute, but or that Allah created everything in six days. Those are obviously not six periods of 24 hours. Even back then, they wouldn't have understood it that way. And, and so our concept of time is much more regimented, uh, where it seems as though the concept of time for that era was much more fluid. And so now imagine that in terms of iftar. Like for us, for iftar, it's right on the second. That 7.18 p.m. today, using 15 degrees as the, the, the sun rising and setting, that's the exact moment of iftar. It would be a lot more loose uh, at that time. Uh, that's interesting, Mustafa, I did not know that. And so we, if we speak of time just as the concept of duration, 
then that's a very different perspective of just this whole thing where you have length, width, height, and time as a unit of measurement. Even this, uh, this is going to open up another can of worms, but might as well open it, but not get into it. That when, for example, Aisha in the authenticated hadith says, I was six when I married the prophet, peace be upon him, and I'm paraphrasing, moved in with him when I was nine. If we take that word for word as exactly what she said, if we do, what we also find in that era, for things that were obvious, they would leave out the tens digit. So when she's saying I was six and nine, she could be saying I was 16 and 19. She could be saying, probably not, that I was six and 19. In the same way that if I say I was born in 71, my daughters would suggest it was literally the year 71. My undergrads would suggest it's the year 1871. But you all know that it is 2071. No, that it's 1971, right? This is our convention of the expression of time. That's primarily a joke about how punctuality isn't really a thing. That, okay, yeah. All right, Asim. Um, so if we take that idea of Allah's time, could that also go further into saying that like essentially accepting all parts of the unseen is a type of submission uh that definitely but i don't know how that relates to the allah time thing so like i mean we we said time is part of the unseen right if we said the past and the future and so if we accept that allah is time then like the the i'm like maybe incorrectly extrapolating it to mean that the entire unseen is elements of Allah, right? So like yeah, that's what I'm not saying. Oh interesting. So okay. that would be like a pantheism of the unseen. And because then we would, you know, where does if we took it to this logical conclusion, Audhubillah, we'd be saying that shaitan is Allah. Right. Oh, so that's not exactly what I mean. Yes, exactly. Right. That's the point of it. No, but but what I mean is like like okay, right now uh my wife is out of town and so there is a sense of submission and trust i have that she will come home safe what a magical segue into a built-in point here what did i do <laughs> that what is built into the belief in the unseen and we're going to see this repeated in all the attributes of the people of taqwa and was also there but never expressed in Mamim, that the whole system rests on trust. Mm, okay. What we will see in the attributes of the hypocrite is that their consciousness rests on distrust. So, Aleph uh, Lamim, when we spoke about that, you know, scrolling all the way up here. We're speaking about ambiguity and then clarity and then the Raham of Allah. The Raham of Allah is a consistent theme um, at the uh, uh, in terms of the beginnings of all those surahs. And intellectual submission has built within it trust. Is distrust and skepticism the same? Let me think about that. Uh, distrust and lack of trust would not be the same. Uh and so Jewel is raising a wonderful question. Uh, is uh, faith another word for trust? In a way, yes. So Mustafa, what is the word for trust in Arabi? 
okay, yeah, sure, thicka. There's another word that I'm thinking of. Thicka is more in terms of trust of a person. Uh, oh, look, amana. Amana, yeah. Yeah. So, so that which we call faith is iman. That which we call trust is amana. Right? That which we call security is aman, all coming from the same word. So they're definitely related, yes. And so this is a point to consider in terms of just the presence of, of the unseen. So uh, amana as trustworthiness, yeah, that works more so in terms of a person. And here I'm speaking of a state. Yeah. So now let's make this parallel with Aleph Lamim. Look at the things we said about Aleph Lamim. Okay, ambiguity. That's a major part of the unseen. You know, so the most common issue that students come to my office with is anxiety. And anxiety is fundamentally lack of trust in elements of the unseen, usually the future. But it could be, what do people think of me? Which gets into the point of people's hearts. So as an act of submission with Alif Lamim, I'm saying that there is knowledge that Allah is not limited by, but I am limited. And then with belief in the unseen, we're saying so let me say the reverse. Alif Lamim is saying that I'm limited in terms of my knowledge and Allah is not limited. And belief in the unseen is saying I am limited in my perception and Allah is not limited. But this is also expanding my horizons, that there is knowledge beyond my knowledge, easy to understand and appreciate, but belief in the unseen means that there's entire realms beyond my perception. Which is more of a philosophical point, but it's basically making the world bigger. So to put that into perspective, uh, I'm going to give you a very, very quick exercise uh, to do. So free up your hands, because it'll involve your hands. And don't even, I don't think we did this exercise yet. Don't even think. Now, immediately point to yourself. Boom. Okay. Awesome. That took a while. Okay, so Austin, what are you pointing to? Your heart? Okay. Bilal, what are you pointing to? Um, it's like at my throat, but it wasn't like intentional. Yeah. Uh, usually uh, when I did this exercise in, in Islam class last week with students, uh, probably about two-thirds of them pointed to their that same kind of throat space. So bring you pointed to your nose. Mustafa pointed to his mouth. Yeah, I pointed to my nose. Because yeah. <laughs> the question is basically at one level asking, where are you? But deeper than that, it's basically asking, where is your soul? So let's change it. You don't have to point, but try to answer the question, where is your consciousness? Is it in your brain? Is it in your head? Okay. And thus, let's see, outside of fasting, I may have lifted my arm higher. <laughs> nice. And then let's change it to, it's in the whole body. Okay. What if you, so Sadia, what if you lose your arm? 
I would still have it in the in the rest of the body. Okay, but is part of your consciousness in that arm? Say that again. So if uh, if your consciousness is in your whole body and you lose your arm, is part of your consciousness in that arm? Sure. Okay. No. And so then if we attach that arm to another person. No. Somebody's like, no. <laughs> I think... I don't know. I'm thinking. Okay, take your time. I think I think your soul is separate from your body. Is it? To me, I thought uh, that's at least that's how I understood it. It's two separate entities. Your mm -hmm. body is just the cavity, the I don't know, physical thing that's holding who your soul is. Your soul. Okay. Because doesn't it doesn't your soul come? 121 days, 120 days after conception. Oh, snap. Check out these references. Mashallah. Building. Yeah. <laughs> and, but your soul still hasn't arrived. So I think okay. they're entities. Okay. So what I'm saying is in the whole body, I'm actually assuming that it includes the soul. I'm okay. not connecting it from the soul itself. So it's okay. the whole thing. Okay. And so then if you cut off all the arms and legs... Where's the soul? You still have it. Where? Inside of you. Okay. Now, Whatever is, is is there. Your so heart, your mind, your... Heart transplant, call. lung transplant, liver transplant, stomach transplant. It's in your mind, your brain. Is your mind and your brain the same thing? No, it's in your mind. <laughs> so this is the point. Let's make it even more fun. You're all saying that the soul is in the body. No, I'm saying it's a separate entity. Body. Okay, but you're saying it's in the body, yeah? Yes. Okay, what if it's bigger than the body? <laughs> Why do you do that? Yeah, because this is... Then it gets compressed to fit into your body. Maybe, or maybe the core of your soul is in your body, but think of, let's change the whole conversation. Uh you've had that experience that you feel like someone's looking at you and then you look and someone's actually looking at you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There is a concept and this is related to the evil eye. And I know I'm opening up yet another uh, can of worms here. This is just a can of worms day, you know, cause I'm hungry, even though I don't want to eat worms. But the point here is when you are looking at something that is a type of occupation of space. So, thanks man. And so, so the point here is that when my eye is looking at something, uh, I am in some way occupying that space. Even though physically, uh, I might not be, let's say I'm looking inside the house uh, or I'm looking at Asim's shoulder. I am occupying space. Boom. Uh, if Wait, that is I'm a sorry, thing, can you say it again? Yeah, say that again. <laughs> what you said that I can you say that again? Can I say which part? Like, I don't, the I, the <laughs> okay. okay. So, if I am looking at something, let's say I'm walking down the street and I look inside someone's house, you know, in a way, my eye is occupying space in that person's house. Your eye or your sight? Let's say those are the same thing for the moment. 
Okay, let's say site just to make it easier. Right. Okay. <clears throat> and this gives us a hint to how the evil eye operates. That the eye can also have coercive power. When you add to sight some sort of anger or jealousy or something. Okay. And then if all of that is possible, essentially what I'm saying is that my reach is greater than the reach of my, my hand. It could be the reach of my eyes. If all that's possible, then all I'm saying is perhaps the soul may or may not be the size of the person, maybe bigger than the person. Sure. That two, two souls could cross over each other. Maybe. Sure. Awesome. I'm confused. Okay. Uh, I've always thought of your soul as this sort of limitless thing that you were given and then you share with everyone. Yeah, how do you right. share it? So the easiest example is like spouse or child is you're like literally pouring your soul into okay. these people. But in a sense, if I, so for example, if I go to the grocery store and I have a positive interaction with someone there, like someone who works there, and that makes their day better, then I've given them a piece of my soul. Okay. That later they'll think of me and be like, "Oh, that was a, that person did something that made my day better." And then conversely, the the that's also true. Mm. So I would agree with all that, except for the use of the word "soul" for that. But you are giving them something. But I'm also not disagreeing. Okay. Because fundamentally, okay. we really don't know too much about the soul. Right. All these things yeah. I'm asking, all these questions that I'm asking, are more. For us to remove a lot of the boundaries we apply to what we imagine about the soul. So, but the bigger point in all this is in this whole realm of the unseen, things are far beyond our perception of the physical world. And a major element of that in our subjectivity is trust. And at the same time, it parallels what we just said about Alif Lam Mim. Tomorrow, inshallah, we will get into and the establish salah. Any last questions, thoughts, reflections on the unseen? Here, let's add one more fun thing. So, jinns we know can leave from the realm of the unseen and enter the realm of the seen, right? Yeah. Uh, angels, in the case of the prophet, peace be upon him, can go into the realm of the scene. Okay. Or Allah may give different people access to certain things within the unseen. We often call this kashf, unveiling. So, for example, I was listening to a lecture and there's a mention of this sheikh from the subcontinent, uh, Ahmad of Sirhand, often known as Sheikh Ahmad Sirhindi, and he is reported to have said that there are 30 prophets buried in Punjab in the Indian subcontinent. And this is a giant scholar. This is like some, you know, some hoodlum, some, some hack speculating. And, and so that would be potentially something that has been revealed to him as a type of unveiling of a fact from the unseen. 
And Jewel is saying, uh, this might be why some teachers have said that, uh, that people do circumambulation around the Kaaba without going physically. Uh, there is a teaching that all the prophets perform Hajj every year. Right. If we walk through all the possibilities, number one, the prophet peace found went on the night journey and met all the prophets who ever existed, meets them again in paradise. And then on top of that, we're taught that someone who's killed in the way of a law is still alive. They're not dead. We just can't perceive it. So there's definitely something related to people in the realm of the unseen and some sort of animation. We see a lot of this in the, in the realm of Sufi discourse. Good. All righty. Um, is knowledge that we don't have also part of the unseen? Yes. Cool. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? So then does that mean learning is a type of unveiling as well, then? That's exactly it. That learning is moving from the unknown to the known. Mm -hmm. okay. yes. I mean, this it really gets into Platonic philosophy. But yeah. Mustafa. So we are encouraged, or not even encouraged, we are told to explicitly within the Quran to like observe think ponder which would all essentially have elements of learning and going from the known to the unknown or the seen to unknown, the unknown to the known but yeah um like so we're essentially encouraged to do our best when it comes to understanding or learning about the unseen Mm -hmm. without necessarily the um like there will definitely be like a limit to what we can do but we don't know what the limit is only god knows and that in and of itself is also part of a life and so how does that like how does that function exactly in the sense of like I it, I know it sounds like a very weird and basic question to ask but why would God explicitly tell us to do so mm -hmm. I'll give you the short answer and we can explore this as we go through these passages uh, because one of the tools of oppression is to reduce what you're capable to do of doing and uh what dean is doing not just islam but religions in general but islam definitely is getting you to expand your horizons and thus your ambitions as high as you possibly can I mean, this is also one of the principles of dua especially in the spiritual realm that you should aim your duas as high as you can because then that becomes a statement of praise of Allah, right? So your ambitions and your dua should go as high as you can. By extension, that is giving you a higher uh, imagination, a higher hope, a higher expectation of Allah, as opposed to the common person who, who aims really low, because they think Allah is not going to do it. But then likewise, you should not be aiming for paradise. You should be aiming for the top level of paradise. And so this theme you find over and over again, 
to aim as high as you can. That actually like hits the spot with my question. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Any other questions about anything at all? So can we say that uh, because everybody has an aura, you know, you are not in the room, but you are in the room somehow. Sure. Everybody has that energy. So it's probably part of the soul. So you could be under well, a roof. Huh? Well, I'm cautious against saying it's part of the soul. But, uh, you know, it could be an energy like in, in Eastern philosophy, there's the idea of the chi. Right? Mm, yeah. Uh, so there could be many dimensions of us that we haven't yet even discovered it gets there before you even get there yourself physically sure. especially if you've been cooking you know daisy food you know you enter the world before, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so but yeah and so one point to consider with the belief in the unseen is that it is there but then it gives us space to expand uh and enlarge our understandings of things so i mean it could be that jinns are basically in the realm of energy Right. Or could be the third in a completely different realm. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? <laughs> um, do these do does the realm of the unseen does it mean different things to different types of beings? Uh I would say yes. In the context of the Quran, it seems to be speaking specifically to humans. Okay. But definitely, there are dimensions that jinns don't have access to. That we do? That, um, that's a good question. I got to think about that one. Or is it just like they have access to everything we have, but their, their perception ends at some point beyond ours? Uh, from the realm of physics, I would say yes, but we definitely have higher access to knowledge than they do. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Wait, how so? A way to think about it, think of it uh, as though, you know, like, you know, a common undergrad might have 13 trillion neurons and a common professor might have 14 trillion. No, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So a way to think about it uh, is think of the comprehension of a jinn as primarily emotional. And the behavior of a jinn is thus comes across as the behavior of a kid, like a six-year-old child. If you look at Shaitan as the equivalent of a six-year-old child, his whole story will make so much more sense. Think of angels as purely rational, purely logical. The questions they ask are purely just logical questions. Why do you need something else? You already have us. But... Uh, <clears throat> And then think of cool. humans as having both of those and more. Does that mean would the angels and jinns be considered they don't have souls? Or do maybe, have souls? maybe, maybe not. What difference does it make? I mean, if they can only, I guess, like you said, I don't know. So here I'm speaking about apel as opposed to souls. I'm speaking about intellect. Okay. And so, of the three beings, which one is superior? Angels, jinns, or humans? Humans? 
humans because of our intellect or because Allah has made us superior, but essentially it's understood to be because of intellect, our aptitude. Mustafa. Wouldn't it be more precise to say because of our potential? Keep going. Yeah, that works. Like, I'm still connecting potential with Akhil, though. The, yeah, the whole reason why we're given intellect as well as choice is to allow for us to become better to... Yeah, that works. To... Yeah. Essentially, like... To reach higher. Yeah. And yeah. so, like, we have the potential to be better. We yeah. have potential to be worse in its choice and intellect that allow for that. So the answer is both yes and no. Yeah. And what makes us as such is potential. Mm -hmm. Supporting your point, um, think of when the Prophet peace upon was on the night journey and his teacher, Jibril, at Islam says, okay, I can't go any further than this because my wings will, will, will burn. And so you're going to go further without me. Yeah. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Alrighty. If there are nothing else, we will continue, inshallah, tomorrow. And tomorrow we will get into Salah. And we'll also explore not just what does it mean to establish Salah, but how does establishing Salah parallel belief in the unseen, paralleling Alif Lambin as well? Alrighty. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah ta'ala reward you all, inshallah, and we will see you inshallah tomorrow. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.